The Guardian. Forty-two. It's the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Well, that's according to Douglas Adams, who wrote about this all-embracing numerical solution in his novel The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But now, some scientists are wondering how close Adams might have got to the truth. 42,000 years ago, the Earth's magnetic field went on a geomagnetic excursion. The poles wandered away from where they sit now, eventually totally reversing for several hundred years, before flipping back. Ice core records also suggest that, around the same time, the Sun went through a series of dips in its usual activity, known as the Grand Solar Minima. It was all a long time ago, but telltale clues of these events remain, not least trapped in ancient trees. Researchers have now used radiocarbon dating of such trees to analyse the atmospheric changes that happened around this point in time, 42,000 years ago. What's more, they've modelled the potential effects of such changes on the Earth's environment to explore whether these events could have had an impact on all manner of developments, from shifts in the climate to changes in human behaviour. Some communities, particularly in Africa and Namibia, use okra actually as a sunscreen when they're out in the bush. One of the things we know is that okra is often used for a lot of its early rock art. So, you know, is this something where it's not just a piece of art, it's also a sign of uh, people applying okra, for instance, to um, their skins as protection? I'm Nicola Davis, and this is Science Weekly. To find out more about this new work, I spoke to Professor Chris Turney from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, who's an author on the study. Chris, your work focuses on a period of time 42,000 years ago. Just set the scene for us. What was Earth like back then? Oh, uh, Nicola, this was a time just on the cusp of the next ice age. Conditions were relatively cool, but you had a planet that was... um, rich in biodiversity even more so than today with incredible megafauna in Australia and across Europe and North America. You had multiple species of humans, including the Neanderthals. Uh, in North America, it was relatively ice-free. It was a far cry from what we have today. Around this time, there were some quite big changes about to happen or sort of on, on the brink of happening. Can you talk me through some of those? So you talked there about some megafauna. It doesn't sound like they had a very prosperous future ahead of them. No, sadly not. No, no that's right. Working in the geological past, there's a, a period of time around 40,000 years or so ago, where a lot seemed to be happening. But because of the nature of dating things that far back, it's been really uncertain precisely when exactly these things all actually happened. For instance, a megafauna that you refer to in Australia, we had all these incredible uh, wildlife, uh, like giant wombats, which are known as diprotodon. We had uh, a whole range of incredible birds, huge birds and giant kangaroos. 
And traditionally, it was thought the extinction happened around 42,000 years ago because humans arrived. But over time, the age of modern human arrival in Australia has been pushed back to 50,000 years ago. So it wasn't that they just appeared and these amazing beasts disappeared. Something else must have been a cause. Elsewhere in North America, you know, around the Hudson Bay, the Great Lakes area, uh, that was the focus of the uh, great ice sheet, the Laurentide ice sheet. But 42 or just beforehand, there was almost no ice. And then suddenly it grew really dramatically. And then elsewhere, you've got surging glaciers in South America. We've got uh, wind belts moving in the tropics, the rain belts and the wind belts in the Southern Ocean. So there's quite a lot going on around the world. But, but, and that this has always been the challenge with this sort of time period, was that because the dating was, uh, wasn't particularly uh, accurate until recently, it was give or take a thousand years or so. So let's talk a bit about the topic of your latest study, which is about a geological event, which sounds very far removed from all of this, but but let's sort of back up and talk a bit about that. So this is an event where the Earth's magnetic poles flipped. Can you just talk me through this? You know, how how common is this and what what's really going on there? One of the key founding building blocks of the whole uh, issue is the fact that, as you say, the Earth's magnetic field flipped. Now, that happens relatively uh, regularly in the geological record if you go back millions of years. The current setup where we have a compass and north points to what we know as north became established about 800,000 years ago, a heck of a long time. Um, but since that period, there have been brief events where actually the magnetic field has weakened a little bit. It's migrated. It's migrating now and weakening a little bit as well. Um, but there's other times as well where actually it flips briefly. And so north becomes south and vice versa. Uh, but it then flips back really quickly again. And uh, in geological speak, we call these excursions because they're not the full reversals. They don't sustain themselves for, uh, for a long period of time. They're just a brief attempt at trying to uh, switch the poles and then they, and then they switch back again. So this is what happened 42,000 years ago, is that right? You had this switching, this temporary flipping of the Earth's magnetic poles. Yes, that's right. It's something known as the Lachamps excursion. It happened around 41, 42,000 years ago. It's named after a village in the, the French Massif Centrale where the magnetic minerals in the lava show that the field flipped and hence the name. And so that was one of the last big events and arguably the biggest event in the last 50,000 years of where the poles did actually flip. Around this time though there was something else going on which is something known as the grand solar minima which sounds very grand indeed. Can you just explain that and then we'll talk a bit about how these things might tie together but first of all what is the grand solar minima? Hopefully, listeners have probably heard of things like the 11-year solar cycle. Um, and that's when the sun get waxes and wanes in its strength, just, just very slightly based on the number of sunspots. But there are also other periods which go on for decades where the sun's output actually goes down a lot more. So there was a period, for instance, a few hundred years ago in, in Europe in particular, which was known as the Little Ice Age, where things became a lot colder. In Britain, you had frost fairs on the Thames because it was so cold. Uh, you had uh, Inuit paddling down and reaching Scotland because they were following the sea ice. It was a really 
pronounced cold face glaciers were expanding over Europe and North America. And that appears to be all partly associated with these, these grand solar minima, things like known as the Sporner minima and the Maunder minima and even the Dalton minima. So these are periods where the sun's output decreases a little bit um, and it appears to get colder, at least in some parts of the world. That's happened throughout the records that we have going back hundreds, thousands of years. And in uh, the ice cores in particular, when you drill down through the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, some of the elements that are preserved in the ice, something like uh, something known as beryllium, is created as a result of these changes. And you can see these cycles coming through. And we know that during the Le Champ, we also had these other events, these grand solar minima happening at the same time. So you've got these two events happening around the same time. You've got the flipping of the Earth's magnetic poles and these these grand solar minima, these declines in solar activity. What impact does that have on the Earth's magnetic field? Perhaps you could just talk me through, because they both have an effect on the Earth's magnetic field. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So in a very simple level, if you imagine it like a bar magnet, when um, they're aligned to the axis of the, the Earth's rotation, that's when there's a relatively, generally speaking, that's a relatively strong Earth's magnetic field. So when, when north switched to south and south was north, you had some sort of reasonable level of magnetic field. But during that switch, when things started moving and the poles started migrating, the magnetic field on Earth during the Le Champ actually collapsed almost to zero, like less than 6%, possibly zero, what it is compared to today, which is extraordinary. And that magnetic shield is really incredibly important for us because basically uh, the top of the atmosphere could potentially be impacted by these high-energy cosmic radiational rays from exploding supernova and the magnetic field acts as a shield stopping these high energy particles coming into the atmosphere and the sun does a similar thing when the sun is operating like today we have this solar wind which is basically highly charged particles coming out from the sun as well and they have the sun's magnetic field also imprinted in it so the two together combine and basically provide a shield around the earth protecting them from these cosmic rays but we do know that these cosmic rays have all sorts of effects on the upper atmosphere and and the few that do get through for instance they create new elements in the uh, upper atmosphere things like beryllium which i mentioned before which comes out and snows out and is preserved in the ice Another one, which is probably the, the centerpiece of uh, our work as well, is radiocarbon, radioactive carbon. And, and this is a minute amount of carbon. It's a millionth of a millionth of all carbon in, in the planet. And it's radioactive. We're all radioactive from these trace amounts of radiocarbon formed in the upper atmosphere, which are taken up through plants, through photosynthesis, and then we eat the plants. So we're all radioactive. And it's formed from this, these cosmic rays reaching up a part of the atmosphere. When you remove the field, though, the magnetic field and the shield, basically a lot more of these cosmic rays can reach the upper part of the atmosphere. And so suddenly things like beryllium and radioactive carbon, the levels in the atmosphere go through the roof. They just rapidly increase. And it also, at the same time, changes the chemistry of other 
molecules in, in the atmosphere. Uh, so much so that actually uh, some of them are ozone-destroying chemicals. And so the ozone in the stratosphere, what we have today from completely different reasons over the South Pole with the ozone hole, we'd have had something similar, but over much of the, uh, the planet, not just over the polar regions. Can you just paint a scene for what it would have been like if you'd been on Earth during this flipping of the magnetic poles? At this time, when the magnetic poles were flipping and the magnetic field collapsed, it must have seemed like the end of days. You've got this collapse of a magnetic field. You had these aurora, these dazzling light shows that we know from pictures from the Arctic, reaching possibly as far as the tropics. You'd have had lightning storms because the air was so heavily charged, particularly in the low latitudes. You'd have had uh, dramatic extreme climate and environmental changes. It must have been extraordinary. And this wasn't just something that happened for a couple of years. Uh, it, it lasted for centuries, ultimately. And so that must have had a huge impact for people living through that time period. Multiple generations would have been having to come up with new ways of surviving this completely different world to a point to which it became almost a normality. So this takes us on to your current study. You're sort of tying all of this together. So I guess what I want to know is, how did the study start? I mean, what were you trying to find out and how did you go about it? A large part of the, the work that my colleagues and friends and I w were interested in is really just how does the planet work and, and how does the whole Earth system connect? We've got major environmental problems at the moment. They're accelerating, sadly. And the problem is the scientific observation record only goes back about 150 years. So we need to look in the past to try and get a better handle on what's how the world works under a whole range of different conditions. And this period struck us just, just a really interesting one. There's a lot of environmental changes, we say, happening around this time. Um, but traditionally, when you go back that far, 40-odd thousand years, traditionally, it's not that easy, generally speaking, to date records of environmental change. It can be a bit woolly, to be honest. You know, you, as I said earlier, you know, you get this idea that these events are happening within like a thousand years or so. But the Le Champ excursion, where the magnetic field flipped for about a thousand years suddenly opens up a chance where you can actually really look at everything really really closely because that flip of a magnetic field and, and when the field collapses in that trans what we call the transitional state which is going from north to south carbon being formed in the atmosphere goes through the roof so we've been focusing a lot in new zealand on these beautiful trees called cowrie or agaphis australis. They can grow for up to a couple of thousand years. They grow several meters across. Tane Mahuta, which is farther of the forest, is like 4.8 meters across. It's absolutely majestic in the Waipua forest. But these, these trees live in, in the northern parts of New Zealand. You can't really touch living trees and wouldn't necessarily want to. But we're very fortunate in because it's, New Zealand's been isolated for 80 million years or so, when these trees have died, some of them have fallen into bogs and wetlands. They've just beautifully preserved, absolutely beautifully preserved. Um, some of the sites we've been on, oh my God, when they dig them out of the ground, the leaves come out green and then turn brown in front of your eyes. It's extraordinary. And they can be tens of thousands of years old. In fact, actually, we have some which are hundreds of thousands of years old. So it's this incredible old wood. And we've been very fortunate working with local communities and timber uh, 
timber companies. And we have now got uh, several trees that grew across this Le Champ excursion. And what we found was um, the annual rings of growth in these cowrie preserved beautifully the carbon through photosynthesis of what was what was happening in the atmosphere. And it shows for the first time in exquisite detail this massive spike, this massive increase in radioactive carbon. As a result, it suddenly means we can actually directly link the records of environmental change all around the world, we can calibrate, we can convert these radiocarbon ages of all these different uh, records from around the world and lock them into uh, records of what was happening in, in the ice cores, which aren't radiocarbon data. Suddenly we're putting everything on a calendar time scale, but locking in precisely on that spike. We describe the carries like the Rosetta Stone because it's basically allowing us to translate what's happening around the world um, at the same time. And this is so critical because suddenly now, rather than saying, oh, something happened about a thousand years or so ago, it, it, it looks like a lot of these changes are happening within just a couple of hundred years of one another, possibly even less. I mean, that's extraordinary that all around the world, these enormous environmental and archaeological changes are happening basically in a heartbeat to one another. So am I right in thinking then that basically what you do is you take the the less precise radiocarbon dated uh, data from other events around the world, and because they'll show a similar trend with a, with a spike, presumably in the radiocarbon, uh, you can then sort of line them up and say, okay, you know, the, the spike corresponds to, to this point in time. Yeah, very much so. It's, it's a moment in time. It's like a, a volcanic ash that's being spread out across a landscape. Instead, you've got this spike in radiocarbon in anything that was alive at that time. And as long as you've got enough dates or you can measure precisely that exact moment, you can pick up that pulse and that can lock you in. Now you've found that indeed lots of these events were happening at a similar point in time. How did you then bring them together to show that they could actually all be linked? I mean, I think you used a computer model at this point, but just talk me through what you did there. There's always this fear, particularly in science, you, you see a correlation or the eye of faith. You know, and as a scientist, you, you always you have to be as skeptical as possible. And when we started this work, we were just using it as a way of linking different records to see what was happening at the same time. And what we found was that from some published records, but also from new records that we actually analyzed and did intensive radiocarbon measurements, we not only found the spike, but the environmental changes in those records was happening at the same time. And after a while, it was starting to get silly because it wasn't just like, oh, that was a coincidence, one site. Uh, multiple sites were happening at the same time. And we particularly focused in on the Pacific region where modern humans reached Australia by at least 50,000 years ago. But we went down into the deep southern ocean at a place called the Auckland Islands, which is at 50 degrees south of the World Heritage Area. It's a precious piece of real estate with amazing biodiversity and life down there. But no humans got there until just 700 years ago. So when we're looking at events like 40,000 years ago, there's no confusing influence of humans who, who might have just been doing something in the environment at that time or were responding to a change. It's completely independent of that. And we found that all these sites are showing the same shift which is remarkable level of coincidence so we knew that because the radiocarbon was spiking and we had beryllium in the ice cores happening at the same time we know the chemistry is changing so the question was uh 
were other chemicals changing in the atmosphere. And so we worked with this amazing group in ETH Zurich who have a chemistry climate model where you can change a lot of these parameters. And we ran a number of different model simulations just looking at what would happen under a range of changing magnetic field strength and changes in the sun's output. And we found that basically that the, the combination of a grand solar minima and also a weaker magnetic field down to almost nothing could result in substantial changes in the chemistry of the atmosphere, particularly ozone, which changed the temperature of the upper atmosphere, um, and as a result, shifted the wind belts, a bit like today with the ozone hole today. Basically, we found that that combination of a weaker magnetic field during the flip, during the switch, and also of a grand solar minimum, it was basically a perfect storm. The combination of the two together meant that the amount of cosmic radiation coming in the atmosphere was massively increased. It changed the chemistry substantially, which changed the climate on the ground a lot. And in particular, the models show, or suggest, I should say, that actually in North America, it got a lot cooler. This Arctic air poured out over North America, where the ice sheets subsequently grew which is consistent with our idea that it was that was what was helping drive the ice sheets getting them bigger and bigger and forcing longer-term changes around the world. You mentioned earlier on about how this event could have affected human behaviour. Can we talk about that a bit? I mean, there's a suggestion here that it could have been linked to the uh, end of the Neanderthals, the rise of cave paintings and indeed cave usage. Just talk me through some of those ideas. Some of these ideas have been floating around for a while, to be honest. You know, for instance, that uh, uh, there's been some really interesting work for some time about the idea that because you're losing a large part of the ozone, that actually you uh, you would increase the amount of ultraviolet light, particularly ultraviolet B light, reaching the surface. So much so that you 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 might well have been aware of burning. And so, you know, human activity-wise, one thing would be that you could imagine that scenario of it, you wouldn't necessarily uh, kill you, but people would generally be avoiding outdoors, perhaps during the heat of the day, maybe hiding out in caves more often, uh, as a shelter, as a protection against that. Uh, one of the fascinating things we've been uh, learning from this and talking to archaeologists is that actually in um, some communities, particularly in Africa and Namibia, use okra, which is a red stone that's used actually as a sunscreen when they're out in the bush, which is amazing. One of the things we know is that okra is often used for a lot of this early rock art. And so you can suddenly imagine, particularly this sort of negative impression of handprints that people might have seen on, on, on caves. So, you know, is this something where it's not just a piece of art, it's also a sign of uh, people applying okra, for instance, to um, their skins as protection? But regardless, you do see this explosion in rock art around the world. And like I said, in Southeast Asia and Europe at the same time. And when we put the published ages together, we found it was coincident with 42,000 years ago. Originally, some ideas have been floating around that that was around the time that you know, consciousness began. The brains were developing in a way that we were able to express art uh, as an explanation for why these completely different regions in the world, people aren't moving between each other, sharing ideas about art, were, were suddenly actually um, preserving art. It was actually a reflection of our brains had been effectively rewired. Whereas 
maybe another way of looking at it is that actually people in different regions of the world were experiencing very similar environmental changes. And as a result, we're preserving art that they probably were already making. It just hasn't been preserved. But by going into the caves, you're preserving it. But in the process, you know, the environmental conditions deteriorated quite dramatically in many parts of the world. And so as a result, there'd have been incredible stress on populations, including Neanderthals and humans in Europe. And so it, it is amazing that when you look at all the incredible amount of work that's been done on Neanderthals, and we've all got two and a half percent, outside Africa, we've all got two and a half percent of Neanderthal DNA in our systems. So we've got a little bit there, but th of course they're not here anymore. And, and so the coincidence of the fact that Neanderthals disappeared at, at basically the same time or very close sort of suggests that there was some sort of competition for resources, even shelter perhaps, or, or perhaps some other factor as well that we still don't know about. I mean, this is, this is just one of the fascinating things by this observation. Once you follow the line of logic um, or the interpretation that what we think is the simplest explanation, it raises more questions than it answers. And, and we hope that'll be a major focus for future work. This research sounds exciting. And as is often the case, huge if true. But as I point out in my article on this study, some scientists have raised doubts, noting that paintings of pigs were produced in Indonesia long before the magnetic poles flipped 42,000 years ago. They also say the timing of the disappearance of Neanderthals is far from clear-cut, and that ice cores from Greenland and Antarctica do not show evidence of the dramatic climate change that this study suggests occurred around the time of the Lachance event. I put some of these criticisms to Chris and asked whether his team's theory could ever really be tested. I mean, it sounds like almost a, a sort of grand unifying event, which I know scientists love so much. But I just wonder, is it actually possible to prove any of it? I mean, particularly in terms of the impact on humans, human behaviour. Well, I mean, that, that, that's, for, <laughs> that's the ultimate question about science. What we do is we put observations together and then we, we try to use a simplest explanation, Occam's razor. And I think in this situation, we've got a range of observations that we think the simplest explanation is this idea of this perfect storm of a weaker sun and a weaker magnetic field causing these dramatic changes. And the data appears to be consistent with that. And we hope that actually future work will actually test those ideas. Some parts might well be wrong, that's science. Uh, hopefully most of it's right. I think one of the fascinating things is if it is right, and we are seeing these dramatic influences from the changing magnetic field and changes in the sun uh, over the geological record, then suddenly you've got this other process that's driving climate and even driving evolution itself. I mean, that's extraordinary parameter to put in the mix. And uh, we've tried to put the latest data sets together and, and it looks like we have a mechanism here that we can explain these big changes. But they were even bigger in the past, so I think this is something just for future work. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. It's been absolutely fascinating. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Nicola. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks again to Chris for joining us. We'll be keeping an eye on how the scientific community responds to this research, so stay tuned for updates. You can find my article about this study on our podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Just before I go, I'd like to tell you about a new five-part mini-series from our sister podcast, Today in Focus, called Freshwater. 
on a bank holiday weekend a decade ago, £53 million worth of cocaine was found floating in the sea off the Isle of Wight. Five men were sentenced to a total of 104 years in prison for their part in a crime they say they never committed. Join Anushka Astana as she takes a look behind the scenes as the Court of Appeal prepares to hear fresh evidence. That's Freshwater from The Guardian's daily podcast, Today in Focus. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it from us today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Thursday. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Listener.